Welcome to First Generation Burden, a series of conversations with immigrants and the children of immigrants. My name is Rich Two, and I'm your host. So welcome to episode six of season two of First Generation Burden. Uh, basically, this will be our last episode of the season. Today's guest is Alexandra Beener. She's a producer here in New York City. I think her story is really interesting because she's a Korean immigrant and she was adopted when she was a baby. It's a bit of a departure in the sense that last season, even this season, we talked to a lot of immigrants and the children of immigrants that uh, that came here by choice. So obviously, I wanted to speak to Alexandra because she had a different point of view on that. We talk a lot about the complexities of foreign adoption. We also talk about that being part of your identity, especially through an immigrant's lens. But before we get into that, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Des Gin. Des Gin is an American modern gin with a mission to unite design with the spirit industry. Designed both inside and out, it merges the traditional and the unconventional. All right, so here we are with Alexandra Beener, or Ali B as she's affectionately called. And like I said, this one's a little bit more different and a little bit more intimate than the others, and you'll see why in a little bit. So here you go with Alexandra Beener. Yeah, it's like Sunday blues. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or like you're just dreading whatever <laughs> fresh hell you're walking into tomorrow. You're you're not lying. It is truly every Monday is just it's complete uh, Garfield mindset. Love lasagna, hate Mondays. So, Ali B, Alexandra Beener, welcome to First Generation Burden. Um, I wanted to talk to you on this podcast, not just because um, I think you're extremely interesting and I do love talking to you, but um, I think that you have an interesting point of view on the thesis of this podcast. And it was always the intent of doing what would have been the final episode of this six episode season. Uh, it would have been a conversation with you. Wires are getting a little screw over here. Um, uh, because not only are you an immigrant and you were born in Korea, right? Uh, you are also adopted by an American family, and that's what brought you here as a, as a small child. And the the difference, aside from like you know the specifics of you know uh, of uh, where you're from and who you are, uh, like everyone I've spoken to. Uh, when they emigrated here, or when their parents did, uh, it was it was because essentially they chose that. So there, it's slightly different for you. And I'd love to just examine that and talk through it, and just kind of figure out exactly what that means. So uh, does that sound good? Yeah, that's fine. Cool. Well, I, well, I would love for you to just tell us about the beginning, tell us where you were born, and um, what your upbringing was like, and let's just take it from there. Sure. Um, so I was born in Seoul, Korea. My actual Korean name is Kim Bok-soon. Um, I was adopted at around three months old. Um, came to America, came to JFK, um, I think on January 29th, 1988. Do you have any memories of Korea? Absolutely not. Um, unfortunately, no. Gotcha. <laughs> I was an infant. Um, but yeah, um, it's funny hearing kind of the stories of just how that day goes down, you know, from my parents' point of view, you're waiting and waiting, you know, to get a baby and then you, they send you a photo and, you know, you kind of get the phone call that changes your life, so to speak, because right. from that day forward, you're planning on becoming a parent. Right. Um, and I think, you know, some couples go to Korea to, to pick up. I don't, this sounds terrible. <laughs> Pick up your baby. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, no, but no, but to, essentially that is what to it is. Meet your, your new son or daughter for the first time. Um, I was on a plane with a bunch of other babies and social workers and we all came to the East coast. 
um yeah it was interesting that my mom held me first and I was fine and then my dad held me and I immediately started screaming which <laughs> which I'm sure he was just thinking oh god <laughs> off to an awkward start but um no it was interesting that a lot of the social workers and the nurses that take care of these babies that are up for adoption are I would I'm assuming Korean women so that was probably the first time I've actually been around a very tall kind of loud man so i completely freaked out even though i don't remember any of this <laughs> oh but this has all been told to you yeah oh <laughs> uh, what's the process like it must it's super hard uh to be to go through the process of adoption from the parental standpoint right right i mean i'm not totally sure what you go through um i do know that you know of course you have to go through lengthy background checks and whatnot you have to go to group therapy sessions with other couples that are looking to adopt um they do home visits right. and whatnot but i thought was interesting is that besides just making sure you know you have a steady job you have your home is safe that you actually have what it takes to i guess financially support having a child sure they even go into your medical history to sure, ensure sure. that if you are at a high risk for developing cancer they right. might deny you because they don't want this baby to be adopted and then a terminal illness could pop up or right. um, i thought it was interesting that you have to go to these counseling sessions with other couples and kind of do a group therapy thing because i think they also want to really understand what is your motive or adopting, mm -hmm. um, even though it seems like it should be pretty much a no-brainer. But right. I think, um, at least in my opinion, I think that it's very important to be very clear that you're adopting because you want to be a parent right. and you that this is your child. Even though they're not biological, this is your child. It's not a charity case. You're not saving this poor baby. Right. You know, it's not like your good deed of the week, right, so right, to right. speak. You're, this is a human life that you're going right. to shape. <laughs> and you're ready for this journey. Yeah, and you're ready for it because just like any child, you can't send it back, you right. know, put it back in the mail if it doesn't work out. So, What do you know about your birth mother? Do you know anything? I don't. I know that she was a college student. Was it? A, is it an open adoption or a closed adoption? Closed. All Korean adoptions are completely... At least in the 80s, they were completely closed. Got it. Like once the papers are signed, that's it. Um, I know that that was really important to my parents because at least in the United States, I believe, I mean, however you work out the terms is probably is it unique to every situation. But um, there are times when I think there's a grace period, so to speak, of about six months when one of the birth parents can change their mind and try to regain custody of the child and that actually happened to my mom's cousin she adopted twin boys had them you know for a couple months and right. then the birth father came out of the woodwork and decided he wanted the kids back and oh that's so emotionally to, brutal right they went to court and everything and they ended up losing the oh, baby so i think my mom definitely was after seeing that her cousin go through that was very much in the mindset of you know, fuck no. For sure. <laughs> this is my kid. So sure. she chose to go to Korea. So your birth mother was in college? Yes. Um, I believe she was maybe 21, 22. But in, you know, in Korea, um, especially in more conservative societies, I guess you could say, you know, being an unwed mother in the 80s, you know, 
and you're a student, no less, you don't even have your career or your life figured out yet is definitely kind of a recipe for, I don't want to say disaster, but it's definitely not ideal. Right, right. Uh, so when you came here, uh, what was what was your upbringing like? And tell me a little bit about your family and uh, what your childhood was like. And and, and it, I guess it must be different for you uh, for other adoptions where you are technically or not even technically, but you are of the same race. So you that's something that you know can be revealed to you later on, depending on what the discretion is between you and your adopted parents but because you are of a different race than your parents it must what is what is that relationship like and that knowledge like growing up um i think that it definitely it was hard growing up to be perfectly honest sure uh, i think when you're a child you can't you can't i understand that i'm adopted you know if i my mother's blonde and right. and has green eyes and my dad is very tall with blue eyes so right. um if i couldn't figure out that i was adopted i think we would have larger problems so to speak <laughs> sure but it definitely is hard at some points you know when you see kids that look so much like their parents or you, you can kind of tell what they're going to look like when they're older right. so to speak whereas for me even um even for in general now as an adult when i have to fill out you know family medical history i don't know any of it wow so it's kind of you kind of almost look at yourself as like take it for granted as, yeah, but it's interesting when you see other kids and there's a clear like lineage that they came from. Whereas when you're adopted, like me, you kind of look at yourself as just a big question mark. Right. <laughs> and you kind of, you're not really sure where you fit in. And also it is kind of, there are a lot of awkward moments, like when my mom would come to try to pick me up from school or she would drop me off at like summer camps or anything like that. Um, there would always be that kind of weird moment of people being unsure <laughs> uh, if she's my mom or if she's like a friend, like a family friend. So there's always that awkwardness. Right. Um, definitely. Uh, I remember when I was in uh, maybe preschool or kindergarten, I asked the teacher, um, is there a term for a lady who is your mom who isn't your biological mom? And so I think, I'm sure she got confused by what I was asking because she said, oh, that's like your stepmom. Oh, hmm. Also because um, usually it would just be my mom or just my dad picking me up sure. and dropping me off. A lot of people would assume that maybe the other parent was Asian. Sure, sure. And that I was mixed. Um, but oh, I that's interesting. Yeah. Um, the, and, that, that assumption, like people have to complete a thought in their heads or something. Right, people, because to see a blonde woman picking up a very Korean looking baby or <laughs> little girl. A lot of times they would assume that my dad was Korean. Um, but yeah, I remember asking my mom one day when she came to pick me up, I was like, are you my stepmom?" <laughs> and I felt awful because she looked so, <laughs> I think in How her, were you at the time? I was probably in like kindergarten. Got so it. very like, Oh, she must've been devastated. I think, you know, I think in her mind, she's my mom and, you know, she had to go through, her own personal struggles to have me in her life. So I think that, you know, you go through this incredible process of just being qual or qualifying to adopt a baby. Then you get the baby and you raise them. And then, you know, when your kid goes to kindergarten or preschool, that's the first time they're kind of out in the, the outside world and they're exposed right. to things that aren't completely controlled in a home environment. So I think that was the first time it's ever been really kind of like, thrown in her face so to speak that like this child 
doesn't look like me and people don't automatically assume that I'm her mom. If that, right. if that makes sense. Yeah. Which is definitely something when you're adopting a child that's a different race than you that you have to process internally and kind of be ready for these uncomfortable moments and and whatnot and you because you know they're coming but i think that was the first time you know in her mind she's like oh shit this is really happening right so like growing up uh when it comes to when it came to your classmates and all that stuff like i presume that there was some sort of like you know you naturally like as a kid you feel uh feel different but but like once you were within uh you know once you break into high school and and like you're starting to just like have an awareness of the world and your identity starts to form like what what is your identity like when it comes to uh all that stuff um at, at an older age um, I think at an older age, I've definitely embraced it more. Yeah. Um, but as a kid, I completely, one million percent, did not want to be Korean or even acknowledge. Oh, that's so. That interesting. I was Korean. Sure. You know, I would go to sleep every night and like hope that in the morning, you know, that I would wake up and be blonde, and oh. I would look like my mom, and I would fit in, and I wouldn't feels like an outcast i would sure. i would look like i just belonged and fit in with everybody else that's do, what i always wanted when i was do you a feel kid. like you had a lot of uh shame growing up definitely definitely i mean everybody has shame but <laughs> <laughs> uh, well let's not get into that we all I mean, we could actually, we could we could definitely get into shame if we want to get really sick and disgusting right now. <laughs> but yeah i think there's definitely kind of i remember um talking to my mom as a kid and I would get so stressed out and almost like panicky if someone asked like where I'm from because I didn't want to say that I was like from another country oh. and that I'm Korean. Oh, they give you anxiety. It, yeah, I would get really like stressed out about it. Because um, I remember, you know, we would do projects in elementary school or grammar school where, you know, if someone's family was from like New York, you know, they would have to like take a map and like put like, you know, where your parents are from and stuff like that. And I was always like anything kind of family tree or geography related. I, I think for kids, they do a lot of things based on your family. Cause as a small sure. child, that's what you can contextualize. Yep. Um, and I just remember for myself, I would get so like stressed out. I would actually get really, really, really like, anxious and like panicky because I didn't want to people to know that I was from Korea <laughs> for some ridiculous reason. Right. And so I remember telling my mom and getting like almost in tears and saying, what, I don't know what to say. If they asked me, I don't want to lie. Like, what do I say? And she said, you know, you can either say that you're from New York because that's where the first place that I landed and kind of lived yep, yep. Um, when I came to America. She said, or you can just say that you're American. If you don't want to tell them that you're Korean, right. you just tell them you're American. And I, at the same time, I said, but I don't look American, <laughs> which especially given but what the, does American right, look like? That's given the, the current political climate. I mean, that's definitely a huge debate for sure now. But, you know, growing up in suburbia in California, where pretty much your classmates are Hispanic or white. Right. Um, but there's still diversity in California. There is definitely a diversity. Over there. Definitely. But as far as, you know, my community I was in, there definitely really were any, many Asians sure. that I was exposed to. Sure. Um, so as far as kind of handling that, you know, it was <laughs> a uncharted territory. So Do you have any speak. other specific moments when it came to dealing with classmates? Oh, all the time. Kids are super brutal. They have no filter. So um, all like the time what? I remember kids would like pull their eyes back 
you know, like slanty. And they'd say, why do your eyes look like this? I got that too. Yeah, they would say, why do your eyes look like this? But then I would have another like panicky moment because I don't want to say, bitch, I'm Korean. That's why. Are you stupid? You know, (laughs) like, is it weird? Like, I went to um, elementary school in Jersey. Uh, It it was in East Orange and it was a school that was predominantly black. And um, there were only uh, African American kids there, straight up. And I was the only, me and my sister were the only Asian kids the entire school. There were no white kids in that school except for one girl I remember in second grade, Laura, who was there for one year and then she left. And um, and the school was, you know, that was that. And um, I remember feeling so different and I remember being so ashamed of my hair because my hair grew long and black and like as Asian hair does and it was just like a bowl cut and I remember thinking I wanted like I wanted to get a fade like all my other classmates or something you know what I mean or I wanted to do to look not the way I looked and I felt so much shame over that when I was a kid that's such a thing when you're a kid you want to be like everybody else yeah if all your friends are wearing Nikes you want Nikes if your friends all have this haircut you want this haircut because you just you want to feel like you belong with your peers which is the opposite then now when you get to high school and college you're like you just want to stand out yeah <laughs> and absolutely. kind of be your own thing and not blend in with the crowd so it's interesting when did you start feeling more comfortable in your own skin um probably high school yeah i'd say high school um i danced in high school that was the first time through that community that i was really exposed to like choreo yeah choreo um when i was exposed to what was the name of your dance crew when you were they were called oh my gosh i can't even remember right now <laughs> <laughs> they've gone through in all fairness they've gone through a lot of name changes gotcha. um, but they have the a strong years. legacy though they do um it was a, a high school dance team um, at San Diego High, started by this girl. Her name was Aiko, and it was called The Effect. And then it tried. <laughs> I know. Hey. The Effect. I was like 14. Give me a break, okay? <laughs> um, but we were actually pretty good. Yeah well, well, yeah. well, I have my own shameful dance past as well. So. Yeah. So we all got a lot of shame. <laughs> That's going to be the, the current theme throughout life shame. <laughs> um, no, but then it kind of they would go through different directors and ownership. And every time there's a new director or a new kind of parents group of directors that were owning the team, so to yes, speak, they yes. would usually rename it. Um, it basically started as a school dance team. And then it became involved with um, this director. I can't remember his last name. His first name is Eric, but he was well known at least in Southern California because he was the director for an all male group called formality got it um and that had ties with culture shock and then eventually the other right. teams like Cabo modern and whatnot right right um, right but the team that i was on eventually evolved into what is now choreo cookies gotcha which is massive right which at least massive. within the world of dance w- within that within that choreo very community very specific community exactly but it's a big community it is it definitely it's grown a lot um, even since I was in high school, yeah, but sure. that was kind of my first exposure to other Asians as well as, you know, suddenly like if I want to listen to hip hop, it's cool. I don't feel ashamed of it or weird. Um, I remember when I was a kid, when I was a little kid, I was really into like Janet Jackson and TLC and stuff like that. And like actually having to get like, if I got a tape, like a cassette tape that was any kind of hip hop music, having to hide it <laughs> from my mom. <laughs> 
having to hide it because she would be like, what, what the fuck is this? And throw it out. Exactly. Or like, I just like, I remember my aunties being like, I heard you like rap music. And for some reason I got really That's embarrassed. That's so ridiculous. I, I got embarrassed. So it's kind of funny that all these things that could be perceived as quote ethnic I was anything, whether it was hip hop music or like R&B or the fact that I'm from Korea. I I had this really intense like guilt and kind of shame factor as a kid. Oh, wow. That's so weird. (laughs) I know. It makes no sense. I mean, that's not weird. I understand that too. I remember when I was a kid, um, I had Mob Deep's Hell on Earth album and then I had the Machiavelli album and then they just disappeared from my room <laughs> one day mysteriously because for listener the Hell on Earth album is just like you know flames from Mob Deep and then Machiavelli is just Tupac being crucified yeah. on a cover and then my parents are ultra conservative and still are still ultra conservative as I know yours are uh, so yeah they just disappeared from my room one day and I found them in like a drawer in my mom's room <laughs> like weeks weeks later and I was just like god damn it <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I think when your parents do stuff like that, they think in their mind, like, aha, nip that in the bud. Exactly. <laughs> Even though really- by Save their soul. <laughs> right. But by taking it or making it so you have, it's hard for you to access it instead just fuels you <laughs> to, <laughs> to where you're thinking, oh, my parents it are does, hiding it from me. It, it must be good. It has to be good. <laughs> if it's being hidden from me, it has to be worth it. That's how I know it's dope. <laughs> All the best shit. <laughs> Is the shit that you can't have access to. Exactly. <laughs> Which I'm, is kind of true in life. Because <laughs> even as an adult, there's a lot of shit that's good that you don't have access to. <laughs> right, right, right. That's very, very true. <laughs> uh, so uh, where'd you go to college? And like, how did you, uh, how did you start getting towards the industry that you're in now because now you're in advertising right and you're a producer in advertising which is a role which is uh, it's an interesting role an interesting uh tension point within <laughs> to say the least like a tension point within the communication of um an agency or any other like um creatively driven you know studio place endeavor whatever um so i'd love for you just to hear about how you got into that um, sure. Well, I went to college in San Francisco. I went to the Academy of Art University. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually went there for fashion design, mm-hmm. completely unrelated. <laughs> right. Um, and then switched over to fashion merchandising because I realized I suck at drawing. I don't like making patterns. I don't, all the things that are pretty important to be into, to be a mm-hmm. fashion designer, mm-hmm. I was not into. So mm-hmm. um, I went into their merch program, which is more tailored to I guess setting you up to be a buyer right which is pretty cool I definitely have a lot of respect for people within the industry oh that's tough that's very tough because a lot of it has to do with you know trend forecasting and whatnot and um it's definitely very interesting but through that um you have to take a lot of business classes as well as kind of marketing advertising a lot of line sheets right and as well as classes regarding like consumer behavior and whatnot because all of those kind of when you're planning out a season so to speak you have to take into account all of those um and i realized that uh, through all the marketing and advertising classes i was taking i i really liked that right um art school is expensive and if I had changed my major, it would have set my grad date back like two years. Sure. So instead, I was like, fuck it. I've been at this school long enough. I just want to get the fuck out of here. Give me my degree. Thank you. And then uh, basically forced my way into advertising by just interning. Hmm. So I was just interning one after the other, working two jobs and whatnot. And basically was like, I'm just going to keep showing up. And right, right, right. So 
What was the first internship that you had? I it was in Las Vegas. Um, oh, wait, so okay, so sorry. So you went from San Diego, right, to SF, right, to the Bay. We went to college and then now you're in Vegas. Right. So after college, um, you know, I needed to get out of San Francisco for a little bit. I need to get into a, I just needed a break. Um, things are getting a little crazy out there and kind of, I was just acting like an idiot, getting into trouble and whatnot. So I needed a break. So I left and moved to San Diego for a little bit, but, um, to be honest, you know, for what I wanted to do, which was advertising, they're just and in, and in general, this the job market in San Diego just wasn't there. Right. Um, I think it's great if you want to work in healthcare or real estate, but sure, sure. Nothing. It, there was nothing really there for different me. lifestyle. Right. So it just happened to be by chance. Um, one of my my ex boyfriend at the time, um, his brother needed a roommate, um, in Vegas, and I ended up getting a job at Nordstrom in Las Vegas. Um, and just kind of went wait, wait, out there. Was it in like that, that in fashion mall? show mall? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, like, that where... like really fancy mall though. That, <laughs> that you look up at like it's like a painted sky. That mall? No, that's in Caesars. Oh, that's in that's Caesars. In Caesars. Okay. Yeah, but um, so what's the other mall? Fashion show. Okay. Fashion show. That's the actual. That's the mall. The other places are kind of the shops that are within the larger casinos. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, so I went out there because I was like, "Well, shit, I need a fucking job. <laughs> I work it. I have a lot of experience in high end retail. I'll just do this for now while I figure my shit out." And it just happened to All be right. that this company that's based in New York called Situation Interactive, right, which is a theater right. performance arts based advertising agency, had locations um, mainly in New York for Broadway. But they also had a location in Los Angeles as well as Vegas. So Vegas and Los Angeles handled a mix of kind of local as well as touring shows. Sure. Oh, right. Uh, that makes a lot of sense actually, because Vegas has a lot of touring shows. Right. Well, like what shows were the were in the landscape at the time? Um, I know for me specifically, I was in handling Vegas. in Ve- the Vegas team was working on Ringling Brothers. Which oh, was okay. really difficult. Oh, and that's disappeared now. That's gone now. Yeah, that was... Or it's transformed. That was... Like that. I don't know what's happened to them, but I just remember it was very... A very difficult project because basically on a daily basis, you're getting like death threats. Oh, from, from PETA? Yeah, from like animal rights activists and sure. whatnot. Well, they got rid of the elephants now. Or they had gotten rid of the elephants after a certain point. Oh, maybe. Um, but... And then I was also working on um, a lot of Disney projects like Disney on ice, Disney live, all their kind of touring shows. Gotcha. So, but that was, and then, um, we also had, I think like Phantom of the opera and a few of the other more theatrical shows sure. in Vegas. Sure. So, yeah. Um, I, so I got into it that way. And then, you know, after about a year in Vegas, which is like dog years anywhere else, it's like seven. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was ready to move and I wanted, I always wanted to live in New York. You know, I, a lot of people I knew from San Francisco had sure. made the move already. And, you know, if I wanted to work in advertising, I basically had to either go to New York or Los Angeles. So I decided to go to New York, uh, moved out to New York and uh, continued interning at, at Situation in their New York office. And then I also worked at um, like some retail gig in meatpacking on I, the side. Can I ask you, like, how lonely was it when you first got to New York? Oh, I tell this to everybody. The first year in your, in like when you first moved to New York, you will never be more miserable in your entire life. <laughs> or tell, at least for me, that was my experience. Yeah, tell, tell me about 
emotionally speaking what it's like because like i've lived in the east coast my whole life so for me new york's always been present in my life in some level right so even coming here was more of like a it was it was a signal of success in my mind coming out of new jersey but also the thought that new york was you know just like a natural extension of what my life was right um it didn't feel so like different i guess for the for me it was like when i moved when i lived in oregon for two years that felt like though this is completely different from what i know um you know and even that was like a little bit lonely too but well yeah so what was it like for you uh it was pretty rough to be honest i felt like i was on fucking mars <laughs> um sure it's everything you know figuring out even how like the trains work and like how to get where you know how the subway system works just right, getting right. around sure and then realizing You're pretty good at it now yeah, I've been here for a minute. So, <laughs> um, but no, I think, you know, I, at first I wasn't intimidated, you know, living in downtown San Francisco, fast paced, also very expensive and what high energy yeah. that I was used to. But I think it's out here. It's literally the way people walk, the way they talk, the way even like ordering food is and the way people think and kind of take information in is completely different out here than anything I've experienced on the West coast. So it was actually besides just the shock of moving to a new city and like the logistics of where am I going to buy my groceries? Like, how do I get to work? Right. It was actually like a culture shock. What are the main differences from a coastal perspective of how, of how people treat each other here versus how they treat each other in the West coast? Um, definitely. There's a lot of behaviors in New York that are completely acceptable here, but are super fucking rude. Like anywhere else like in what? the U S I think, um, I can't even think of any really off the top of my head, but I just noticed that, you know, New Yorkers are very, I think we get mislabeled as being, you know, rude and mean. I don't mm -hmm. think New Yorkers are mean. I think though we definitely straightforward. You, you have to be very straightforward and assertive because if it's rush hour and you don't just jam yourself onto that train, you're going to miss it. You're going to be late for work. Totally. You're waiting for a drink at the bar and you're not just like, Hey, excuse me like you right. know what i mean people are just going to keep walking in front of you totally. so because there's so many of us you're just trying to cut through the bullshit noise and be heard right 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 so to speak it's crazy living in a city where everyone is literally living on top of each other and then you go to a place that's like wide open again like oregon where you know you're standing in line for coffee at a starbucks or whatever and then the cashier asks you how your day is going then you strike up a conversation and there isn't that inherent sense of rush but then right. in new york when if someone were to do that for you um um, if you were waiting in line to like Katz's Deli and then the guy cutting the pastrami asks you how your day is going, it'd be like, whoa, what is happening right now? <laughs> like, bro, are you new at this job? Right. Or if you're the person who asks that, they look at you like, hey, asshole, what the fuck? I know, exactly. <laughs> like there's like a million people behind exactly. you. Exactly. Please, like, like don't make them angry at me totally. because you're taking too long. Yeah, if I, if I attempt to strike up a conversation with that guy, like I'm the one being rude. I'm right. being super rude. Um, yeah, that's definitely uh, like some of my biggest pet peeves from living in San Francisco and from living in New York that are both very public transit and like walking <laughs> cities is nothing pisses me off more than people who walk slow. <laughs> I hate that. And then I really do hate it when it's super crowded, whether it's a bar or a coffee shop or wherever. Yeah. And there's a long ass line, hella people, and then someone doesn't know what they want. Right, right, right. <laughs> or they're asking a million fucking questions. Right. 
totally. So I guess maybe just an overall like impatience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, That's kind of, I think definitely going somewhere that's really laid back like Portland or like Oregon, um, you totally just look like a neurotic anxiety ridden bitch uh, basically yeah. like, absolutely like you just look like a straight up bitch absolutely. Like, <laughs> yeah you're like fuck that guy right or i'm like fuck you don't ask me how i'm doing <laughs> <laughs> when you get to new york um you you're probably looking for jobs and stuff like what are what are what are some of the projects that you've worked on since you've been here um so when i got to new york i was able like i said to continue with the situation sure and then i got a retail job as well mm-hmm. um and then kind of just let that play out for a little bit to see how it went. Um, the eventually my inter- so much hustle. Yeah, my oh yeah, I would. There have been times when I've left my internship and literally ran <laughs> to my next job. Sure. Um, but you know that's just the way it is when you're first starting anything in your career. Definitely. Um, and then kind of through there, I just because especially with Broadway agencies, it's very incestuous. There's maybe, right. you know, there's only Everyone likes to smell everyone else's farts. Sure. Um, <laughs> but, you know, from there, I ended up going to a company called Spotco and, you know, kind of learning a lot more about the digital business as far as like actual media planning and trafficking ads sure. and whatnot. Um, and so, and kind of learning the Google platform and whatnot. So through there, I kind of learned digital media, which then brought me to AKA. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of just became the producer at AKA by chance because there wasn't anybody else to do it. Sure, There wasn't anyone else in that role at the time. Um, and I had a pretty good relationship with, the studio so it just fell into place and i realized that that was kind of where i wanted to carve out my career was right. in as a pm producer so you've had a good mix in in your career so far of like a couple small shops and big shops yeah right yeah so what's the, what's the biggest difference you think between like some of the smaller spots you've been and some of the bigger spots you've been um i think when you're at a small shop you kind of it's hard not to feel at times like there's always a gun to the back of your head sure um because there's always work. The deadlines are just as crazy, but unfortunately there aren't as many hands on deck, so to speak. Um, so, um, in your role, even though you might be a project manager or producer, suddenly you find yourself, you're also the ad ops person. You're also running paid search. You're also kind of floating in between various departments. Um, which I think is great because it teaches you a lot of just a lot of extra skills and can definitely help you focus on, Oh, I love digital media. I'm going to stay in this or I hate digital media. You know, right. it kind of helps you figure out the type of work you want to do and maybe the type of clients you're interested in as well as projects. Sure. Um, with big shop, I think it's great because like where, where I've been at AKQA barbarian group and VML. Sure. Um, big shop is awesome because you just kind of, if you've never if you've just only come from boutique agencies, suddenly, you know, you're like, holy shit, there's a whole department that just does this. Right. So you're not constantly feeling like a chicken with its head cut off, just trying to find sure, bodies, sure. you know, anyone who has a spare moment in the office. Sure. Um, I think in the challenges that I have run into at times um, is that I think when you have a bigger team, of course, you can run into the issue of too many cooks in the kitchen. Sure. You know, um, everyone has a voice. Everyone has a lot of strong personalities. And sometimes um, it doesn't necessarily mean that more is better <laughs> mm-hmm. in that aspect. But I think that's 
been a little difficult. Also, um, it becomes really easy to become just very complacent in your role um, and not, or be very just settled. And this is how we do things. This is how we run every project kind of, cause this is just the way things are. Yeah. Um, rather than constantly looking for how can we evolve? How can I make this easier? Mm-hmm. How can I make this more efficient? Like what, is there a better way to do this? Does your identity uh, of being a uh, Korean born and also even being adopted and all your upbringing, like how does that inform your day to day? Um, I don't think being Korean and being adopted now at this point in my life as an adult, it's not something that I'm aware of every day you sure. know, or like, um, but it is interesting that it does come up at random times. Um, it can be inconvenient just from an actual like practicality standpoint. Sure. So like every time I move and I need to get a new driver's license, for right. example, I have to bring all of my paperwork with me because I wasn't born in this country to prove that like, I'm here legally. <laughs> right. I'm a citizen. Right. Um, especially given the way things are right now. Sure. Um, it's definitely an issue. Um, I think as far as my race as or my identity as an Asian woman, um, sometimes you in life I've run into, I guess, situations where I think people assume because you are a certain way and they have this stereotype in their mind um, for Asian women, a lot of times they assume you're kind of more submissive right. and very like meek. Why do you think that is? What is that stereotype of the of the submissive Asian woman? Well, I think part of it is the way that in pop culture that we've been per- like portrayed. Sure. Um, but, you know, in general, I've gotten that a lot, which is funny because anyone who knows me, I'm definitely not. Oh, yeah. Not that. Oh, um, you're a fire I'm plug for sure. Very loud, very abrasive. <laughs> I'm a fucking asshole. <laughs> I'll be real. I've never been in more almost fights. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm my, definitely a lot to deal in with. My, <laughs> I'm in a lot my thirties. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot to deal with, and I I fully am aware of that. That I'm not a peach, you know, all the time. <laughs> I'm not a prize all the time. <laughs> well, okay. So for full transparency with the listener, we are we are uh, engaged. We we are a couple. Yeah, it's like as weird. It's like, what do I say? It's like a fiance, which, but okay. So the word fiance is a shit word. It's a terrible word, right? <laughs> you can all acknowledge that that's a garbage word. I'd, ra- I'd much rather say partner, but then partner is also another terrible word. It's like, what is it? It's not boyfriend, girlfriend, broken past that point. But anyway, whatever. So, uh, yeah, like, wh- wh- what is it then? Uh, like, do you feel that you've arrived? Like, have you worked past all that stuff? Like, where are you at mentally? Mentally, physically speaking. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think there, you know, there are times when I feel like I've moved past it, but then something will happen and I'll be like, oh sure. shit, that's still there. Sure. Yikes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Do you ever want to go back to Korea? Definitely. I would love to go back and And you've never been back. Never been back. Got it. Um I would love to go back and would you ever of... want to meet your mother? That is a loaded question. Um, I know. That's why I asked it. I asked I it because it's super Yes, loaded. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, um, I, I, you know, I've thought about it. I've been asked that a lot throughout the years. I definitely think, I guess, thinking back, I remember in my early 20s or maybe when I was like 17 and I'd moved to San Francisco and kind of that's like, I think, yeah, I was like about 17 or 18 because that's your first time, you know, as an adult, so to speak, out of the house, living right. on your own and thinking like, holy shit, I can do whatever I want, you know? 
within reason. But, <laughs> and I, it, for some reason, I remember thinking, man, if I wanted to f- track down my birth parents, I could do that and, you know, go by my, or, you know, I don't have to ask my mom's permission or my parents' permission to right. do it. But uh, I remember it's very consciously thinking that if I was going to try to even locate this person or contact them that I wasn't going to do it until I'm at least 25 because I'm like, I know where I'm at right now. When I was younger, I was like, I am, do not have the mental or emotional maturity to handle this. Right. Um, I think as an adult now, it would be definitely something I'd be interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess my main hesitation is I honestly don't know how I would react. Right. Cause I think growing up as an adopted kid, you have this, whole kind of clusterfuck of like emotions when it comes to your biological parents. Yeah. It's like a miserable smoothie. <laughs> it's right, like right, throwing right. all these crazy emotions into a blender. Sure. Um, I mean, cause I think, you know, on one hand it's hard not to think like, well, like why didn't you want to keep me? Right. But then, you know, as you get older, you realize, Oh shit. Like actually you cared that much because you knew you couldn't, take care of me. Right. So you made the ultimate sacrifice, but then it kind of brings up, you know, another can of worms of like, well, shit, what if, you know, they, I have half siblings now. And then is it going to be weird that like, do they know about me? They probably don't know about me. How am I going to feel? Am I going to be bitter that like I got sent away and they got kept? It's, you know, it sounds like crazy, but it's, no, kind of because it is. That's it, not. That's not like weird you, at all, yeah. your mind can't. It's almost impossible for your mind not to go to, you know, these. I'll ask all those questions. Right, these places that you know you don't you don't have the answer to at all. But then, you know, you take into account if you were going to meet your biological parents, like you know. I feel like in TV and movies, it's like a really uplifting, happy moment. But you know, what if it's Maybe, actually, what, what if it's, well, it's supposed in theory, if that's the happy ending kind of version, but you know, uh, it has crossed my mind. What if it isn't good? Or what if, you know, I meet this person and, you know, I can't control the fact that, you know, suddenly I'm very resentful. Right. Um, and that's just being completely honest. Yeah. That like, I really don't know how I would react in that moment. Or if I would just be completely terrified and like not even want to go through with it, you know? I know that when I met my brother for the first time, because uh, for the listener, like I have, I have a brother who I love and, uh, but we didn't know of each other's existence until like really only a few years ago. So there was a, there was a time when after learning of his existence, that I had, I had a lot of questions about, like, you know, should I, should we meet, should we become close? And there, there were a lot of question marks, but then inevitably it happened. And, and then we were ultimately like our lives were, were improved and way better because we had each other now. Um, but I guess it doesn't always go down that way, huh? Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. I definitely think though, growing up, that's, you know, as far as wanting to be the best, as far as like, I did really well in school. Like I would play sports and try to excel like physically to be the best. And then, you know, going to college and then, you know, 
forcing myself to move to a million new cities and like forcing myself to build up my career. Like sometimes I wonder if, did I just like subconsciously do all that? So if the time comes and I do meet my biological mom, I can be like, look at all this shit I achieved. You know, like I wasn't a mistake. I wasn't for nothing, so to speak. Right. Like, do you feel validated? Right, then right. I'm like, shit. Just like James Franco, Spring Breakers. Like, look at my shit. <laughs> right. I'm like, like, do you feel validated? And I'm like, actually, wait, or is it me that needs to feel validated? Oh, that's interesting. Do you feel the need to feel validated? I think on some level, Do everybody does. Do you feel does. validated? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. if I, I think that, but it's kind of hard on one hand. It's, you don't want to be like chasing validation all the time, but at the same time, I like... It's always, hard not to, especially when you Right, I always like standard. pushing myself because this is the moment you think I've made it. I'm validated. I'm comfortable. Then I feel like that's when you run the risk of becoming complacent and totally. kind of plateauing out. And then you're like, no, I'm good here. Like I, I'm good. I've, I've done enough growing or, you know, achieving. I'm, I'm done. Right, right, right. So that's definitely not what I want. So if you, I mean, if you could have an alternate, like parallel universe situation, right. Would you want it to happen the way it all happened? Or do you think, or I guess that question isn't fair. I think it's not fair. Yeah. Um, and you know, to um another another situation that happens a lot in or use was happening a lot in like Korea was there's kind of a mix of babies that were like me that were given up immediately. You know, okay. you're born, you know, you go somewhere else for a little bit. Okay. And then you you go to whatever country, you know, you're supposed to go to you've been assigned to or I don't know, whatever. Sure, I, I, all sure. this sounds terrible the way I'm wording it, but you know what I mean? But it is what it is. It is what it is, right. Like you get shipped off to whatever country you're going to go to. Um, but it's, you know, there have been cases where sometimes parents or the family of, you know, the mother of the baby will try to take care of the kid and then realize, you know, a couple years in, they can't do it. And then they put the child up for adoption. Oh man. That's another common thing that was happening. I actually went to school with a girl who I think she was about like two when she came over here from Korea. Okay. And I remember, um, her adjustment was much harder because you know, because she um, had memories, right? Cause your hippocampus is starting to develop oh. around two or three in your brain. So that's when you start to develop basic memories at around like two or three years old. So I don't know if she really remembered Korea, but I remember she, when she came, you know, she had a lot of health issues and stuff because, you know, the family couldn't afford to take care of her. But also, you know, I remember her being held back in school because emotionally she just, you know. It's hard. She just was, yeah, she she was going through a lot at a very young age emotionally. So, which is also interesting that when I came to America, there was a period of like a couple of months when my mom was saying, she's like, you would just scream, just cry. She's like, for like hours at night, you just start crying. She's like, I had no idea what's going on. We took you to the doctor to get checked out. You know, like what's happening, you know? <laughs> and literally the doctor said, there's nothing physically wrong with your daughter. Um, but we see this with other adopted kids is usually because that you're a baby, you can't process or articulate how you're feeling. It's actually the real emotional level like of loss of being removed from your parent and then removed from your country and you're in a new place. And like literally that's the only way I guess that you can, as 
you know, at three months old, six months old, however, yeah. that your your brain and your body can <laughs> can process like this crazy traumatic event that just happened. How do you think that go? Uh, how do you think that being who you are has prepared you um, in a way that's better than other people? Um, I don't know if it has. I mean, I think the. I think on one hand, it definitely has made me very independent. Gotcha. And I mean, not better than other people. Not maybe, better, like, but different. just different. Right. I think I'm, it's made me very independent. Definitely not afraid to. Oh, for sure. To Be- move very independent. Alone yeah. and start over alone. When did you first leave your? When did you first move out of your parents' house? Seventeen. Seventeen. And then you've then you just just been on my own. Ever never since. went back. Yeah. Right. I think that it gives you that kind of drive, but you know, at the same time, I definitely think that there are some issues. With like, I mean, this is, no one likes to feel rejected, but I definitely think what if I ever feel like not accepted or rejected in some way, I like emotionally, like I internalize it and take it really hard Hmm. instead of taking it from a point of view um, where you're like, oh, you don't like me? Like, fuck you. Like, go fuck yourself. You suck. You kind of like, I think I have a tendency to be like, to go inward and be like, fuck what's wrong with me you know like why am i not good enough there's definitely a a, some kind of underlying feeling of like needing to feel good enough like you belong at the table with everybody else you're just as important you're just as smart you bring you contribute enough to be just as like validated to be i guess just as validated to be there as any anybody else i think that i think that's a a common uh drive point for anyone that like wants to be good right you know Right. Yeah. Like I said, I think it's definitely when I was younger, a point of like, you know, wanting to be like to my biological mom, like I was not a fucking mistake. You know, like you took a chance by sending me overseas and look what I did. Look what I became. And also, you know, to the parents that adopted me being like, yo, you took a chance getting this baby from (laughs) across the world. And, you know, I guess kind of proving that you're not a mistake. Yeah. It's kind of depressing or I don't know as dark as that sounds no I don't think I don't think that's dark at all I think that's just I think emotionally speaking that just is what it is and I know what drives individuals is different for everyone so if that's what where your starting point is when it comes to drive then if that stays with you fine and then if it evolves then that's something else you know I think it's totally natural to to be uh to be pushed along by by something that is probably hurt you in the past right you know like who isn't like who who isn't that's good at what they do uh you know kind of building on an old hurt because i know i am you know right definitely also whatever having that shame makes you way more interesting (laughs) (laughs) anyone who has got who has their shit together is probably boring as fuck so i mean yeah having that shame is way interesting shameful crazy motherfuckers i mean they (laughs) definitely throw the best parties and have the best stories so (laughs) i should think of what that might be the name of the episode that shame makes you way more interesting Yeah, well, that's true, but yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're about to wrap up in a little bit. Um, so I'm I'm curious to know like what you think about the current state of everything that's going on, specifically uh, what's happening uh, with uh, the conversation with Korea and and like the the relationships that this country has. Like, I know that's not specifically what we've been talking about, but I am curious to know what you think about it. Um, I mean, because because I I uh, the situation the situation for South Korea in relationships with North Korea it, it hurts me right now just like to see those guys 
kind of, you know, they're in a bad way. Right. Well, I mean, um, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's like on one hand, I live in America, so I'm in a sense removed from that. Of course, yeah. You know, it's. I think that's also just a very American thing to feel that way. Like, oh, it doesn't affect my my current life or my day to day. It doesn't directly affect me. So, right. whatever, I can like push it to the back of my mind. But um, just in general, as far as issues between North and South Korea, it's always actually it's been like a we not a weird fear, but um, something I, ever since I was a kid was that if they ever went to like war or anything or like shit was going to pop off because Seoul is so close to like the border. Yeah. One of my fears when I was younger was that they would get bombed and that like my family in Korea would die before I was able to find them and meet them. Um, but as far as like now, it's not something I think about every day. Um, but in general, just, um, I guess like, I kind of have touched a little bit on, you know, like the political climate in this country and, you know, all the craziness that's happening right now. Yeah. Um, you know, I think even though, yes, I am here legally, but I'm still an immigrant and all this kind of anti-immigrant make America great again bullshit. Like it's hard not for me to take it personally Yeah. because, you know, like I'm not curing cancer, but I definitely think I do contribute to at least my society and my surroundings. Sure. Um, whether it's negative or positive, I guess depends on who you're asking, but, um, <laughs> you're a force to be reckoned with, but I, you know, I do take that personally. And I think that's complete bullshit. The idea of make America great again, because that's basically in my mind is like remove all the immigrants, like make who I think all these people who make this country so interesting like myself. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> I mean, I think that's America's already great with people having immigrants like me here and everybody else. And, you know, especially given that most of our friends in New York are immigrants as well. And they're amazing people. Right. And they've changed my life completely. And they've changed, you know, even like our industry. Yeah, it's true. All right, LB. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. Bye. So that was Alexandra Beaner. And like I said, that conversation was a little bit more intimate than all the others, and rightly so. You can also find Allie at AllieKim.com, A-L-L-I-E-K-I-M.com, and also on Instagram at A-L-L-I-E-K-I-M-B. Uh, she is private, though, on Instagram, so if she get a follow back, good luck with that. So that's it for this season. Uh, last time I took a pretty long hiatus. I don't know if I will this time. Um, so I might come back a little bit sooner than expected. Uh, but that said, I want to thank our sponsor, Des Jin, uh, Ben Sounds on Music. Don't forget to subscribe to First Generation Burden on iTunes. If you want to find me on social media, it's rich underscore TU at Instagram and Twitter and all those other places. So that's it for season two of First Generation Burden. I'm Rich Tu, your host. Thanks. Bye.